Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode started originally to be about platform migration, but turned into an interesting topic about the end of expertise or the changing of the way we think about expertise in a variety of contexts and ultimately came back to how the knowledge necessary to do platform migration, platform improvement can be radically transformed by the use of AI and how we are entering a world where the lock that we've had in a platform or the longevity of a platform is radically transformed by the ability to review, scan, test, correct, and transport the data included in that system in a much, much more efficient way, that the expertise needed to handle platform migration might be entering a new era um, in which it's radically reduced. We talk through the implications of those transformations in this podcast, and it touches on a wide range of the impacts of knowledge, AI, and uh, generative machine learning. That's something I hope you are as fascinated in as I am. Do you know that book, by the way, Rob? And expertise? No. Is that a Tom book? Nichols. Tom Nichols. Oh, worth worth reading. Ooh, maybe we should add that to the um, book club list. I'll add it to the book club list. Okay, the death of expertise. Death that's of what, expertise. Is that what you're thinking? Um, yeah. Nichols. Yep, that's it. That's mm-hmm. the very one. Wow. The campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. This is fascinating. I got to get this. I'm. Yeah, I'm oh my god! The I'm reading the the data cartels book, and it's um, it's very <laughs> dense. It's like waves of like ah. I'm trying. Yes, it's an intense read. It is an intense. It it is it it does. Uh, it takes some slogging because the author has written it very with a you know a lot of references every every statement she makes in the course of this you know she will put at least one pretty solid reference you know oh yeah she, her, I mean, her background is as a law librarian after all so you know that kind of you can see that but I think her whole point here is um, she really does an exceedingly convincing job of you know demonstrating what has happened, and in particular with those two extremely large firms. It's um, it's interesting and scary that neither of them have announced any plans with regard to the use of their collections of uh, reference data and data on individuals, all of the, the various kinds of data. Neither of them have made anything serious or at all revealing about what they plan to do 
as, you know, in opening them up as training data for large language models and arguably, especially for the Lexus Nexus uh, parts of it. Mm. You would assume it's, that that is going to, you know, would be a major, major issue and a major, major money maker for them. So they're playing this whole thing very, very close to the vest. And my guess is they want to wait until there are certain kinds of regulation and technologies that allow them to, first of all, lay claim to copyright or licensed material that they, you know, they have, they are doling out so that they can make their money. But second, um, they are going to need and want some means of uh, probably mm, fingerprinting or or tagging tagging data that comes out of these AIs, such that they can they have the the lineage and the provenance back to mm. the dependencies on the the original the original data. In that's, in law, that's got to be a big deal. We're gonna have a good. We're gonna have a fun. Dis, we're gonna have a fun discussion on that on that book. I have it slated, by the way, for May fourth. Yes, the the discussion. Oh, I need the, to get. I need book. to get on the stick and 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 keep keep getting focused on it. So. I, I cannot see publishers, uh, or at least the, the the publisher business model, uh, aligning with. Uh, the fluidity of content that um, large language models get. The, I think, yeah. the, the, the way publishers, like how aggressive they are with their with the protection of their content. Um, I mean, uh, like a tool uh, like chat, a GPT tool um, is inherently a content sharing tool and, and content mixing tool. Uh, this is an anathema to their business model. Like I, I, I personally see them as just entrenching and uh, using, trying to use the law to quell the use of their content in GPT or large language models as much as possible. I I don't think that they will incorporate their the corpus of their, you know, proprietary data into the large language models as training. What they will be doing and what they are already doing with APIs, the forms of APIs, is creating sidecars that are especially built for large language models. So you've got, mm -hmm. uh, and, and in order to do that, they would have to take the corpus of data that they have create what effectively are vector databases containing the you know basically referencing those uh, all the content putting everything in place and then <clears throat> offering them up as a sidecar data set database that gets accessed from a chat gpt or some other large language model service but probably was, with something like like a, a um a, one of the language one of the nlp 
kind of packages. And that's that's probably what the way that they will make use of, you know, keep track of and keep hold of their data and make it, but still make it available in the context of um, chat GPT or some of the other LLMs. I, I can only see them doing that if they configure it a way to monetize the content that is produced out of there. Yeah, uh, that means that they actually actually do have to have with the chat GPT some way of mm. uh, fingerprinting or watermarking anything that uses their stuff. Which will be a legal nightmare for those that those of us don't have use to use content, it. but still produce content that is similar enough. There's going to be a lot, a lot of large possibilities. There's going to be a lot of legal cases about derivative works. The, the lawyer, this will be a, the gift that keeps on giving for for attorneys that are in the whole business of intellectual property. Yeah, and a nightmare for the rest of us. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> It'd be a good, that'll be a fascinating conversation. Uh, on a related note, um, the, the, the thing that I, I'm, I'm actually more worried about with GPT type tools is the risk of the models getting poisoned. Oh, that's, that is absolutely oh, interesting. A big risk. Yeah. Like, uh, we, we're, we're right now in, in, in a Wild West scenario, and um, we, we are seeing cases where where DSX got, got mixed up and, and commingled, and you, you get results that you definitely don't, don't want to use. Uh, so it's, it's going to be an interesting couple of years, I think. I think the thing that scares me more is the services, the newswire services that are jumping into bed with some of these sort of, I don't want to say fly by night because that's not what I mean, but rapidly emerging, not yet baked for primetime AI companies. Uh, Palantir is founding partner or investor in, in about six of them. And two of them I came across recently where they're partnering with like Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. So that to me is the bigger nightmare scenario. And to Klaus's point about pollution, if you're using those services to add context to your large language model or to bring them more up to date, how are you possibly going to justify the fact that you're using a third-party service who may or may not be all that reliable despite their best effort. So I, because I, some of it is opinion. I, I, I'm concerned I'm, I'm a, 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 a more a darker scenario to that. So not just pollution, but actually malicious action. Yes. Like poisoning. Sure. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I completely agree. I mean, my first thought was... Gee, a third-party service like Bloomberg or, you know, Yahoo Finance, and I'm asking ChatGTP, what's the background of a stock? And then go and publish something that's got recent information 
and something that may not be as much in the public domain as people think it is. You know, certain analysts are putting this stock on hold. Others are putting it on must buy, et cetera, et cetera. There's enough there that you could actually create the narrative or, or manipulate the narrative on share prices. And so I had this discussion with someone the other day, and I, I was oh. mentioning that I wonder if prompt engineers are not going to have to be licensed in some way. Right. Well, uh, you know, like also, analysts are licensed. And like if we also take this to the dystopian extreme where all of the data is suspect, like not, not just third-party data, but even if the, the second uh, first-party data, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Then th there might even be the the we might even see the 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 birth of a new type of of career, data historian, someone yeah. that, that that actually goes okay. and vets the uh, the pedigree of the data for you. Well, forensics are going to get very very big, and a lot of that is going to have to be uh, based on. Depend data dependencies, the lineage and the provenance of all of this stuff coming in, and that includes um, the data and the data coming from a, a Bloomberg or from a, a LexisNexis and so forth. So yeah, now that it it changes the nature of uh, how you establish authenticity, veracity, all of that. That actually locks in the value of um, um, that actually locks in the value of services, the data cartel services that you're talking about, even more strongly because they have uh, walls around the provenance of the data. Yes, mm -hmm. except they don't allow anybody to get in and and investigate the provenance. So what? You know, they can they can give you data that is um, tainted, that's got you know mistakes where they've mixed people's uh, records that have the same same last name or, you know, stuff like that. They have, you know, and they are they are adamant about not letting you in, not doing anything. Basically, you know, you have no recourse. And that's where that's where regulation has to show up. Well, I mean, there's that part from my notion of the prompt engineer being somehow vetted and licensed to me also, I think, is something that will come up very quickly, because if you're hiring people to write prompts, they damn well better know what they're talking about as they write those prompts. Like I was just, you know, fooling around and I said, I want a prompt that says, build me, build me up. As in, how would you build me a house? How would you build me, you know, a, a, a connector between ChatGDP and, and my uh, 3D printer? Build me up. And it said, you can tag and referred me to the developer, you know, information of how you should be writing prompts for, for GTP4. Apparently, they have an entire collection of documentation of the right way to frame 
writing the prompt. Absolutely. And I thought, so I here, you know, I'm, I'm just doing this as a fooling around thing. So put me in a different context of being a contractor. Build me a house. It can't differentiate location. Building codes are different everywhere. Right. Um, this, that's a context question, isn't it? It well, is. The, the, the build me out is well, the prompt. A well-formed prompt would say, right. I want to place, oh, I want to build oh, a house. You're saying. I want to build a house in the following in the following place or under you know with the fall you know in an environment like x you know now i want the i want the instructions i want your advice on issues that i have to take care of exactly so so we did one for fun build me a tiny house in toronto <laughs> and because okay. it stopped at 2020 pardon me because it stopped at 2021, it doesn't know about the building code changes that happened that year or later that literally changed the game in terms of how houses are built. Yeah. If you'd asked the same question to uh, Google's Bard, it would have been able to tell you that. Well, here's an interesting thing. Oh, interesting. Google Bard is not supported in my country. Our country, sorry, Klaus. Yeah, not, we don't. We not don't get yet. To play. It's, it's it's beta, and by the way, they they are not making it available to anybody with an with a um a, man, a managed account. The only people who are getting beta access are people with individual personal Google accounts. Well, I have both, so. Yeah. But you you see, even that makes no sense to me. They're concerned about they're concerned about liability. Yeah. Okay. So we started off with one book or two. <laughs> we started with one book at a time. First, first book is Data Cartels. Summer book will be um, Investments Unlimited. I'm going to try and get Willis to come in and talk talk about it, and then nice. we just put the death of expertise as our call. So we're, we're queued up <laughs> in, into this, but I put a topic in um, to explore. Um, uh, uh, I was, I was guest, I was guest on a podcast yesterday and talking about um, the expertise modes that are enjoyed by some of the clouds. Um, where people don't think they can fund infrastructure or do things themselves and mm. whether or not AI could potentially lower some of those moats, yeah. moats so that, that the expertise required to do some of the tasks that we assume that you know, companies don't, don't have the people to do or the knowledge to do anymore would actually be transformed by AI. Just like, um, and actually we're, we're discussing, there's a, a, um, a link to it discuss um, the Eric Norlin SK Ventures post about the death of technical, it's not the death of technical debt, but it's the ability to drain technical debt using AI um, and how transformative that is. He compares it to the printing press. 
Um, but it's that lines up with this whole concept of redefining what expertise is. I mean, what we've just talked about for the last 15 minutes is, is a, you know, prompt engineering is really figuring out how to tap into the expertise of the um, AI of the generated system. Well, hmm? the, other, the other thing that I was thinking about with, with respect to this, based on, you know, some of the book and, and other things was, are we getting to a point where all moats will disappear because of generative AI of any kind, not just ChatGTP, but what's out in open source and whatever? Because, okay. well, because when I was thinking about it, and I, I was speaking with someone yesterday who's a data scientist at an ASIC maker, uh, or rather, I should say, the manufacturer of the equipment that the TSMCs and the Intels of the world would buy. And he had a very interesting take because 70% of the data scientist's job is cleansing the data and preparing it for the modeling. So they're struggling with showing time to value to the business as early as possible. And they're now looking at AI as a way for them to like model the model, if you will, to help them uh, pre to help them cleanse and prepare the data to remove that 70% to make them more productive, to show faster time to value, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, that's a very interesting moat because as moats go, not every company would definitely have data scientists, number one. Right. I mean, you have to be within the top 10% to be able to afford them, but you would give data engineers that role or maybe even DevOps people that role, not well, on the upside, what, on the dev side. That, that really is one of the big premises around data engineering, and that is the reduction of that, um, um, the amount of work that data scientists have to do. That's that's what data engineers are supposed to do, and that's what um, that's the the primary one of the primary motives of uh, kind of the modern data stack that we've been kind of starting to be victimized by uh, for the last four or five years. And you know, you, you it it reduces the amount of uh, time that data scientists have to spend with the data cleansing and so forth. Uh, it turns the job into the you know a job specifically for the data engineer and that's that comes that comes with a, a, a fairly significant price to pay as well. So it's yeah. it's shifting responsibilities. It is shifting responsibility, but what does it do for technical debt in the sense of can you then take technical yeah. debt and recuperate some of the cost out of it? Mm -hmm. Yes. To lower I think it. it I think it I think it it does address technical debt. Uh, possibly not as much as as folks would like, um, or would like to think it can. the The issue that you raise, however, is a lot of it is uh, methodical. It is um, formulaic, and yeah. so what that so the the implication that you could use AI to both. Um, 
a, a variety of ways of testing and cleansing, including doing predictive work and kind of saying, all right, this is what I expect to be in this cell, given histories and so forth. Whoops, that's anomalous. Uh, you yeah. can start looking right. at a variety of different ways of doing transformations that clean things up or at the very least remove suspect data that's going to be uh, that's tainting. So, yeah, there's a, there's reason to think that a that these kinds of AIs, generative AIs and predictive AIs can do a lot for reducing that kind of overhead that you've just described. I mean, if, well, if you're doing that, conceivably, you would actually prolong the life and effectiveness of a lot of these systems. Yeah. Right? One yeah. of the uh, things that makes legacy systems actually not functional has nothing to do with the quality of the software. It has to do with the debt of accumulated bad data or, you know, um, you know misconfiguration, right. stuff like that. If if you can address, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just thinking like I'm, I'm, working to get, you know, uh, AI evaluations for what, what Racken does. And I'm like, we have evaluations that just reviewed our body of existing automation and, you know, found issues or flag, flag problems so that we could clean them up or potentially recommended the cleanups. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it addresses what I, what I describe as an automation half-life. Um, yeah, so... That's one side of the coin. The other okay. one with the legacy system is uh, it's not so much the, the knowledge about it, it's the integration. If the mm -hmm. environment where the, where the system lives in changes to the point where it's the system is, is no longer able to optimally integrate with said environment, that's what I would consider to be a legacy system. It, it doesn't right. matter whether it's maintained or not. I, a well-maintained system can still be a legacy. I, I think you're. I agree with you that the one of one of the ways I see legacy systems is as an island. But increasingly, even re relatively, you know, old software has. It has reasonable APIs from an integration perspective. Um, now, I, right? I, I do agree. I mean, that, it might uh, not be as desirable as we want, but they're, you know, going, going all the way back to the '90s. We've had ways to, to you know, sort of pull data out. Right. Yeah. Push it. Yeah. I, I do agree. However, that the generative systems will be a boon in terms of extending the lifetime of older systems, not necessarily legacy. Um, Thank you. The maintainability. Um, it should also, along those lines, make reasonable configurations more accessible um, in the sense, and, and this is the, the, the question, like, that that DevOps try to answer, like, okay, if the developer wants to have a reasonable default out of the box when they create a system, what do they need to do? A generative system can help with that. Um, and there's also the matter on the data side about accessibility. 
Well, the, the problem that data scientists are, are, are facing these days is not so much their ability to process data itself. It's just the volume of data. So have, having a tool that can, with a certain degree of predictability, process the data according to their own rules, it would make it more accessible to to work through a data lake or a data mesh or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Klaus, are you are you are you suggesting that what the data scientist wants is a way of expressing the domain that kind of the universe of discourse that they're interested in. And that in fact becomes the the basis for extracting from the data lake. Is that what yes. you were talking about? Okay. Yes. Uh, a and real life example. Domain Domain-driven, yeah, requests. Sure. Here's a real-life example. I like I, I work uh, like in 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 term in an observability-related field. So I collect a lot of metrics. Every once in a while, I get asked, "Well, we need a roll-up for for this particular data," and it's like, "Yeah, I can do this, but I I need to write the expression to do the roll-up." And each time series that that we collect needs its own distinct rollup because, like, do I do I generate an average, min, max, standard deviation? So having a tool that where is where I say, give me a, a rollup function for all of these time series would save me a lot of time. It's still the same job. I know what needs to be done. It's the repetitive part that is yeah. absolutely boring uh, and no one should need to do it, it, like it's the, the equivalent of working in an, in an assembly line that we that we now re have replaced with robots well there you have it that that's the perfect kinds of job for some of the systems that we're talking about mm. and and actually kind of getting to the original topic uh for today that's yeah. the kind of thing that you want to actually add as intelligence when you're intelligently moving, intelligently replicating, intelligently syncing live data from one spot to another. And this is a this is you would think that someone had would have you know kind of addressed a lot of this in the past. Um, and it's it's not been done very well yet. No, but I mean, part of that, part of that is also, I mean, so yesterday I'm preparing for Passover and I'm up to my eyeballs in matzo, in, in vegan matzo balls. And I get a text from a neighbor who says with a picture of an opossum who says to me, do you know what this animal is? And I, and I look at this and I'm like in between calls, heads down working, uh, running up and down the stairs between my office and the kitchen and trying to do everything that I needed to do. And I stopped and I looked and I'm saying, I don't have time for this today because, you know, I, I just don't have time for this today. But I also thought about it. And to your point about it, data intelligence, I said, if I don't respond, somebody could get hurt because they have children, Right. And they look at these opossums and they go, oh, fuzzy creature, I should go pet. 
well, that's a fuzzy creature that could bite your arm off. So, and they're, they tend to be quite vicious when they're provoked or when they're scared. So I come back and I go, okay. And I think about this because I say, yes, it's an opossum. I put the link to Wikipedia. That's my data intelligence. And then I send it off saying, tell the kids not to go near it and, you know, be safe. And I go back to, you know, mutts of, you know, flying everywhere and that kind of thing in between calls. And I stopped and I thought about it. And I realized that the framework for transformation is actually, are you ready for this? Time to data. Time to intelligence. Time to decision. And then time to value. And that's how you could break it down into manageable chunks. Each of the two of you doing, you know, part of that, because time to time to uh, data would be IAC or visibility or whatever data mesh, well, data fabric, and the management of it, the data. And sometimes the it goes further than that, further back than that. It's discovery. Yes. Time to discovery. Yeah. So I started massively, you know, in the middle of my cooking, writing this down and writing a piece on it because I'm saying this would clarify for a lot of people the way they need to approach something that complex. And you literally could fit all the subcategories of data management under each of those three or four buckets. From you're looking Discovery. for a metric, a metric or a, a, a family of metrics of value of data or value no, in, in the life cycle. What I'm trying to well, time to time to value, right? You want to you want to decrease the amount of time to make a decision, right? That's business intelligence or data intelligence. Time to so knowledge. how fast can you make can you make it faster? Pardon. Time to knowledge that that you know that gives you the point. You're at the point where you can make a decision or have, have the decision. Correct. Made. Okay. Correct. Right. And the more time you shave off of that, the faster you're producing value in one form or another. And in some cases, you can actually put a metric around that. Yeah. If I can predict when my machine is going to go down, I can have the parts inventory in stock to make the change, right? Yeah. You can tie it to value that way. You can also tie it to value of buy the part on sale or at a reduced cost or time to shop around for it. In yeah. financial terms, it's the difference between a consumer leaving a financial site or a wealth management site with enough um, because they're not getting what they need to be able to make an intelligent decision on a trade. You can take it across industries is my point. And I'm thinking about all of these things and I'm saying, if you put a sort of a table together that talk to the time to, and each of the points that we've just mentioned between Rich's point of source and delivery of, of time to value, you could start looking at these things in ways that you could automate that intelligence that you were just referring to. And there's probably existing tools that can do it, but they're not framed that way. There's probably new tools that will evolve with AI that will do it that way and be framed in that sort of 
more user-friendly way of, you know, ask me a question, I'll give you an answer, or I'll give you, you know, enough insight or knowledge to make the decision yourself. How much of that can you shave off? Yeah, and 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 I may have been speaking at a kind of a, a different level when I read the the you know the charter for today's this conversation, which was <laughs> which which we haven't was, gotten to, Rich. You're which right. You really haven't. Yeah, I mean, but, no, um, I, I've been letting but, it run on AI. Yeah, yeah, and you know your point, your point, Joanne is yes, time to value or time to actually it's if we're talking about decisions you're talking about time to uh kind of sufficiency i know enough about something that i can make a reasonable decision i can i can you know play play off against my my risk model and kind of say yeah you know, I, I've reduced risk to the point where I know enough. I'm going to make my decision, and I'm going to turn left, not turn right, not go straight. You know, it's, it's those types of those types of decisions. I well, think you're 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 definitely you're you're right about that being one really. Ex, I mean, a, a very very important metric. And to Klaus's earlier point, a lot of the means by which you get to some of these is very formulaic it's very it's very methodical it can be done by a robot it can can be done by an automaton and that that goes to you know cleansing it can goes to intelligent tagging kind mm-hmm. of, um things that you know are in the data lake that need to be tagged in order to be, you know, truly useful. Um, a good portion of it can be done under automation and doesn't require a human being. It's got to be discerning enough to know when it's encountered something that it doesn't know how to deal with and therefore kick it over to a, a human being. But you know, those are those are systems that can also be built. But, well, the, I mean, the one pulling, pulling this back to the, I mean, to the topic of platform migration. I mean, I I think we have been having a pretty coherent conversation without being specific about moving data between two systems about this you know, potential revolution we have that lowers the barrier of data migration. Because a big piece of, of data migration that we're talking about is, you know, what, what we're laying out is understanding what you're moving, doing enough analysis on it to make it real. Building a system that does that work is, has been incredibly expensive, but perhaps now is not. And the expertise, right? The ex- mm-hmm. expertise that we were talking about needing, the data scientists or data engineers, you know, if, if we're reducing the bar for, for that work to be done, then we're actually making it much more practical to move data um, right. from an, uh, an older system to a newer system. I think we're, we're and, also potentially extending the life of older systems by doing data uh, cleanup and review the, the technical debt problem. Um, it's, it's actually a fascinating world where 
existing systems could be improved significantly through these processes and the exit paths from these systems could be improved significantly for that. I mean, even not just data, you could make it, we might be getting to AIs that could migrate VMs between clouds with, you know, with out much human, even less human work, because I know a lot of those processes are already automated. Yeah, I mean, um, you're, you're talking about a form of DevOps there. And, 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 and if yes. what you were speaking of prior to that was something, you know, one of a better word, call it data ops. Yeah, there's no is, reason is why there, can't. Is there an extent to which, I mean, we're, we typically have been talking about AI as an analysis and decision aid, aid. How long does it take before somebody makes less AI be a much faster button pusher? For, for this migration, right? You would you would actually you could you could let query by query AI make decisions about where things go, or you could say you know when this data is ready, move it, and and trust the AI system to, to affect well, the whole chain. The 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 point there, in, you know, that's in some sense uh, the hope of a lot of this. You know, that you get to that. The thing is, you have to be able to. Um, understand the problem well enough to know that the, the AI that you've put in put in place is is first of all testable, uh, trainable, testable, and then you know in order to test it out, what do you do? And you know at what point do you say, yeah, I'm I'm willing to you know place my systems under the you know kind of control or this part of the my systems under the control of a of an automaton that closes the loop it makes an makes a determination and then you know face it creates a run book you know jams the run book into the uh, in into the ops console and suddenly <laughs> boom you know you're there so um that's that's you know folks have been have been looking for that for for Oh, uh, actually, um, nice. for a long, long time, they've My been looking career. to do that. And one of the ways they um, do you have you run into this um, group called uh, CloudFix? Yes. Okay, CloudFix actually takes AWS uh, cur files and you know AWS ter- uh, tools for a customer. Your customer, you know, drops their their per file, the 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 billing and accounting file that in that comes in excruciating detail and will drive you crazy. And they drop it into a customer's S3 bucket. They do some goodies with it, and they they do the analysis. Uh, they have they claim they're using some form of AI, but rather than actually performing the right, you know, actually pushing the button, they literally generate, uh, I think it's called an SNN script or an SNN, um, what do they call it? I thought it was called script. It's it's an SNN script for the operator. It says, here, we suggest you do this to optimize the, you know, your costs. Um, and it'll do this on a daily basis or on whatever the 
you know, the period that you're looking for. And the op guy, the operator is supposed to sit there, look it over and say, yeah, that looks good enough or yeah, I approve, you know, run it. So they're giving the human being kind of a, a final choice and not actually pushing the button as you were, as you were describing Rob. Right. And that's, once they trust, that's once they trust the results well enough, I mean, this is what RPA, the robotic process automation stuff has been. Yeah. You know, but people typically build a whole bunch of that stuff. They still keep humans in the loop to do a, a check review. But I guess once, you know, if you get to a 99.9% correction, you know, correct rate, I, I think the issue, and this is worth, worth talking about probably in, you know, we're, we're running out of time. So the future. Um, is there's having AIs give you the confidence in their answer in addition to the actual answer would be would be useful. Because to me, the issue is, issue with having a robot push the button is, does the robot say, I am 100% confident this is the right thing to do, or I am oh, so you're, 90% so you're saying, like, is there... Yeah. You're, you're, you're kind of saying, you know, kind of mirroring the... Uh, the uh, yeah. Um, Star Trek, uh, you know, Mr. Spock, you know, says you have a 37.5% chance of succeeding, you know, uh, and don't give me the odds, Spock. Yes. <laughs> it's life, Jim, but not life as we know it. Um, yeah, the point here, the, the, the point here is you want, you want a, you know, the, the assessment and the, the confidence level. Right now, one of the big complaints about generative AI is it will, you know, hallucinate, you know, create an article, create a reference to an article or a blog post uh, with, you know, all of the, um, you know, kind of customary, you know, here's the reference, here's when and where and so forth, the author, and here's the title. And it's a complete fabrication. You know, and they do this with such confidence, verbal kind of assurances, that you're sitting there going, you know, it says I wrote it says I wrote that article two years ago and I, I don't remember, but you know, maybe I did. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because somebody asked me that about something that I had written on LinkedIn. And I said, maybe it has access to ResearchGate. I don't know. I mean, I published through there, so I don't know. You know, but it. Um, to your point, I'm waiting for trade-off management just as much as confidence in. Mm. Let the AI make the decision, multivariate, multi-factor trade management, it, risk and reward, you know, choose the system and the configuration based on this, based on that, whatever, whatever, where you have trade-off management coming into play is in things like um, uh, anything that's predictive. Uh, give me the give me the probability, for example, that an early chemical entity in a drug is not going to have eighty percent adverse side effect on the human population. Tell me upfront before I do anything with it. That's trade-off. And nobody's ever been very good at it. I believe that that's where some of 
the AI generative together with other things would really be very useful. And it would give you that confidence. You can't get it just from words because, no. you know, you, you wouldn't. That's that's the big mistake. I mean, you if you could ask for a confidence figure and it's probably not a single single metric, it's probably, you know, multiple multiple dimensions. I have confidence in this aspect, but less confidence in that aspect. The idea yeah, of like putting real, it all on one dimension just, you know. It would be very hard. It would be extremely hard, especially when it comes to risk, yeah. because risk takes forms, you know, yeah. in, in many, many ways. So I was going to I was going to add the risk dimension. Also, you have your confidence and risk is, is critical. Yeah. Is the level of risk, uh, man, is it manageable? And, um, you know, risk management by AI is being done in financial institutions and in insurance companies mm -hmm. right now. That's a that yeah. is a real business. Yeah. And they are under obligation for the risk models that they use to be documented in a very, very uh, uniform fashion. They are obligated for um, um, they are obligated to uh, go through a, a validation of their risk models. If you're a bank that's over, I don't know, one billion, one billion in assets now, you have to you have to go through all of your risk models on some regular basis, and first of all, uh, document them according to the the the, the standard, and you have to validate them, and. That usually takes somebody who's a, you know, reasonably facile in risk management and a good editor months to do it for each of those models. And some of these banks have thousands of risk models. Sure. Uh, this, so, that makes that makes sense. We use that for weather prediction. I'm thinking about hurricanes, like 538. Yeah. I'm thinking about political polling where like but yeah. they actually review the quality and, you know, they have, they have all sorts of metrics. I, they I mean, maybe you a, yeah. they give you, they, they literally try to give you a, a kind of a uniform set of metrics. So no, I, um, valid mind is the, the company I'm, I'm associated with. that does that. Wow. We're, we're going to wow. start getting to the point where expertise is so cheap, right. That the, because it's, but, but relatively less trust. I, actually, I don't know if human expertise was that trustworthy either. Um, but where it's it's going to be, I end up with multiple opinions. Multiple. I consult multiple AI experts. Mm -hmm. Where there's not alignment, then you're back to humans having to make some judgment calls. If there's alignment, then you're going to assume that that's a safe safe yeah. position. The risk. Mm -hmm. So part of the risk scoring, I think that Joanne and I are both thinking about is mitigated not by the model telling you the risk, but by consulting multiple models. By consulting multiple models in specific domains, in specific contexts. And I think that's the only way you can get to it. Like to your point, Rob, about RPA, I could see 
somebody brilliant coming up with an RPA tool for data engineers that would alleviate, you know, the repetition to everything. The question that I have about it is how you go about creating that RPA that takes into consideration all the variables that you would need to have based on everything. The challenge I have, and I think this comes straight back to the topic of, plat- of a platform migration, is the thing that we're all excited about right now is very is very generically trained. Um, it's not not trained on specific data for a migration or the specific data we've been looking at. I think we, we're going to have to figure out training. This is the conversation I have with our CPO. It's like. How do you train, you know, you can't train GP, chat GPT on our, our, our systems specifically to provide useful answers. Feels like you can based on the, the prompts that people are, are getting. Um, and that's, that's sort of the question I have is, you know, are, do we need to then further train and refine these models for the individual cases that they're dealing with? Data grooming, you know, cleaning up. Data building a, a bridge between two systems, um, or can we can, with the AI becoming generic enough that you can say, you know, and you to translate, you know, this body of data between this format and that format? Go. Oh, and by the way, don't don't look at any. <laughs> it's all sensitive data, so please don't share it with me. Yeah, but yeah. I don't. I don't. That I think is is the. The, the question in this AI mix with platform migration that we're talking about is, you know, do these general models handle uh, very well, narrow? When when you talk about platform migration, I think one of the things that that people who have been in this business a long time continue not to take into account is this very topic of data migration and what do you do with the data? You know, more more times than not, I hear I I I've been involved with with companies who are doing digital transformation, kind of move their systems to the cloud after making some adjustments, you know, turning them into something that's more cloud native, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I say, okay, and have you made any decisions about the data? Are you changing format? Are you changing? Are you doing any uh, pre-processing, post-processing, any additional tagging, stuff like that? And they kind of look at you like, you mean we might have to do some of that to move it to? to yeah. And it's kind of like, uh, yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, the round peg square hole, commonly called the ellipse, is what you end up with if you don't. But the That's idea if you're of, lucky. If you're pardon? If you're lucky. If you're lucky, if, yes. If you're not lucky, it's just broken. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, I mean AI dev, AI ops, RPA for AI which is a new one. Um, RPA, for and kind AI, of, RPA for data, I 
get. Gosh, I don't know about so RPA much, for so much I don't know about RPA for AI. Well, to me, RPA for AI is kind of a redundant statement. Yeah. Yeah. But for data, uh, for the cleansing, for the tagging, for the all of that sort of stuff, many, uh, to your point, Rich, most are not thinking about it or yeah. the opposite is true. They're not thinking about the platform. They're only thinking about the data. Yeah. yeah. And these are, these are, you know, for them to be systems, you have to consider both. Yeah, I mean, the stuff that you're just talking about, the kind of the RPA for data is what I've been referring to for years as data husbandry, you know, the idea of, you know, the care and feeding of the data set. And that's kind of it's a <laughs> it's a soft it's a soft term, but it it kind of addresses the 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 intention. And that's that's where I know, I, but every I'm done. Every time you say it, and I mean this in the most respectful way possible, every time I hear you say data husbandry, I just want to go moo. Yeah, well, you know, this you can take you can take the kid out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the kid. <laughs> you know, I grew up I grew up on a cattle ranch, you know, it's it's what am I gonna, you know, can't 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 fight it. Can't fight it. Guys, I have to jump. Yeah, Me fine. too. Thank you all. Wow, what a fantastic conversation. We really start peeling back the covers on how transformative the new generation of AI and ML is going to be in very, very practical terms. This is something that we are going to continue to talk about, and I invite you to participate or join in these roundtables. Uh, in addition, we will be reading and discussing several of the books we mentioned. The first one on the list is Data Cartels. Highly recommend the book. Uh, it's a bit scary if you think about uh, owning and controlling data. And uh, we will have a robust and resilient conversation about it in a few weeks. So please check out the book and join us for that conversation. You can find out more, including the links to the book, at the23.cloud in our agendas and meeting links. I will see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.